Hey folks, part two of food, the spiritual science of eating. And this episode is called the evolution of food. So real quick, this is a series. So yeah, part two follows part one. Uh, so I would say it would probably flow a lot better if you would start there, even though it may be I know, a little bit older, <laughs> which is funny, I get it, uh, but you know, the, the me of a week ago, really, I, I still pretty much agree with him today, so uh, go back and listen to that one if you want to. If you want to just dive in right here, you might check that one out later on. I think it makes the, the rest of the series make a little bit more sense. All right, so uh, last fall, I did a series on how to be a whole person, and it sort of looked at our inner emotions and how our brain operates and how to fully live out of them and how to be healthy in an inner sense. And then in this series, in part one, I, I called I called that sort of the 90% of us that's hidden. So if you use the iceberg analogy, the series on how to be a whole person sort of address the part that's under the water a little more. And this series is sort of about the tip that sticks out. So that leads me to the point that if you want to be healthy and all you ever talk about is food or exercise or the externals, you are missing the big picture and you're in the wrong place. Like how many of us gave up on New Year's resolutions because we were terrible at keeping them? And then like how many of those resolutions were only external? Like there was no letting go of anything. It was just I want to eat better. I want to lose weight. I want to exercise. So the old analogy is that like an iceberg will often drift against the wind, which looks impossible if you're on the surface. It just doesn't make sense until you understand that like 90% of the iceberg is under the surface and it's being driven not by what the water and the wind's doing on the surface, but by the current that it is in. And so if you see your life like an iceberg and like you're wanting to go one direction, you think you should be going one direction, and yet it keeps happening that uh, you end up going the opposite direction of where you're willing, then it's time to look under the surface. Now this series is about the externals, and the externals can be a place to start if you know that you don't stop there, but let them in a non-judgmental way teach you about yourself because they're an outgrowth of the internals. It was uh, Michael Jr., the comedian, that uh, said it and it stuck with me that how you do anything is how you do everything. So let yourself teach you about yourself. If you're a person that wants to change how you eat and you failed and you've under uh, and you haven't undergone a large interchange, you need to start looking there. Now, uh, for today, I wanted I want to talk about the evolution of food. I want to give you a brief history of how we got to be on the craziness that is the American diet and the American food system. And so, in, in order to understand it. It's time for us to back up a little bit. We need to understand that the food that we eat has evolved, which you kind of knew because, like, your your great granddad did not like call up Uber Eats at midnight, right? So, if the word evolution scares you a little bit or makes you nervous, it just means the forced change over time. 
we all believe in some version of evolution, just just different versions of it. So like we even see evolution happening right before our eyes. It's what happens to bacteria and viruses all the time. Uh, they're, they're all born with different genetic mutations, uh, most of which don't matter. Occasionally, some of those mutations are going to be detrimental, and that bacteria is going to die and not reproduce. And then some of these are going to be beneficial, and that bacteria is going to gain an advantage over bacteria brothers and sisters, and these these going to become the alpha bacteria and proliferate, say, when an antibiotic wipes out all of his brothers and sisters. So given enough time, it is completely plausible that a mutation in one tiny bacteria can spread over large distances because it's so effective at what it does, and the defenses don't work against it. So there, there are two cooperating yet competing forces in evolution. The, the organism that thrives in its context and then the changing context that has to respond to that organism. So like uh, take a football analogy. Offenses in 1950 did not involve somebody giving out some generic play and then yelling Omaha, Omaha, 319, calling audibles at the line, then going back in shotgun formation, throwing to one of five receivers on the run and hurry up offense. That This is not at all what offense used to be like. What you see today is fundamentally different because the defenses changed to respond and then offenses had to find a way to survive when they found things that worked against the new defenses. Then the defenses changed again, and together they were competing yet cooperating forces. But get this, they moved football in a linear direction towards now what we see when we turn on the TV. This is evolution. Competing yet cooperating forces that are moving in a linear direction. And it's really critical to understand that our food and the way we eat has evolved over time. Now, the, the human diet has gone through major transitions over time. And I want to take you through the history of it today just a little bit. If it seems boring to you, hang tight because we are headed right toward that Chick-fil-A sandwich and waffle fries you had this week. So start here. Many, many, many years ago, we ate raw food. And then along the way, somewhere in history, there's sort of mutation happened in the way that we consumed food. Uh, it was like the first mutation that became very widespread and just took over. Somebody somewhere discovered cooking. Now, some anthropologist would say that cooking is actually what allowed humans to become human. And the data on it, it's kind of hard to disagree with. So our brains have about 86 billion neurons, which is by far the largest number of neurons of any primate brain. And those neurons, it turns out, are very expensive. So like on one hand, they're really efficient because your brain is like a supercomputer that weighs three pounds and uses 20 watts of energy. But still, it's very expensive because of how amazing your brain is. It burns one-fourth of all the calories you consume. That little three-pound blob in your head burns a quarter of all your body's calories, which hopefully sheds a little light on like why you can be so exhausted after a fight with a spouse or after a long eight-hour workday that didn't have any physical activity. Because your brain 
burns lots of energy. So there's a, a generic rule that every 1 billion neurons is going to consume 6 calories of energy. And that's true for brains all across the animal world. So like gorillas and chimps uh, and orangutans, they, they spend about 6 to 9 hours a day eating. Why? Because they have a large body and a large brain. Now, uh, gorillas and orangutans, their bodies are bigger than ours, but their brains are a little smaller than all of the rest of those. Uh, their brains have about 30 billion neurons. If they wanted a brain that was much larger, they would have to give up some body mass to get it or take in more calories. Now, the problem is they have already maxed out about how many hours per day they can eat. They're already eating six to nine hours a day. Most of all the daylight that they have, they are eating. And a chimp, they're a little smaller than a human, but they have the largest brain out of those animals. And so they have uh, a diet that requires about 1,600 calories a day, and it takes them all day long to eat it. They just eat and eat and eat. Now, a human, we need about 2,000 calories a day. A human, if all we ate were raw foods that we had to forage in the wild, we would spend about nine or more hours per day just eating. We, we would never be doing anything except for just looking for food. So our ancestors happened upon this really nifty invention that was just like a mutation in the DNA of the human food narrative, cooking so someday some cave dude uh, cooked his food and noticed that it was soft and chewy and easy to swallow. Because what cooking does is it pre-digests food for us. It softens it and it makes calories more available for our bodies to more efficiently extract. It sort of gets it ready. So it allows you to put more food there and to consume more food faster and get more out of it. So that allowed us the ability to spend less time per day eating and more time per day thoughtfully preparing food. Now, that didn't happen immediately, but over long periods of time, we were able to move towards being more thoughtful about cooking and spend more time with margin that helped us develop intellectually and spend more time while still being supported with all the calories that we need because we're not going to have to eat six to nine hours every single day. So cooking was like this big game changer, and it caught on across the world. And so every civilization now in the world that is human cooks. Now, it was mutation uh, number one that I want to mention, but I want you to see where this is headed. More energy, more efficiently. That's the name of the game. So, move forward a long time, and the, the next uh, big mutation began to happen about 10 to 12,000 years ago, when people in the Nile River area and some people in the Fertile Crescent discovered that they could control their food by planting plants in places where there was good water supply that was stable, and they began what we know of as farming. They, they discovered some plants that were really good at this. Some of the first grains began to be planted. And this was sort of like an, an advantageous mutation in the type of food that we eat because grains, well, these, first of all, they were very different than the modern grains. They had grains like wild emmer, einkorn, lentils, chickpeas, and things like that. 
But I want you to think about what a grain is. Okay, what made a grain catch on in the history of food and when farming began, why were they so popular? They had a winning combination. One, they were storable. Two, they were cheap and easy to grow. Three, calorie dense. Now, until farming, until the like mass production of grains, we didn't eat a ton of grains. Like, you ever try to pick wild wheat? You, you realize, one, it's disgusting and hard. Two, there's a lot of work involved for not like a whole lot of benefit because a grain is tiny. You can grab, you know, if you're just foraging in the wild, you can grab an entire leaf of a mustard green right off the plant, or you could grab an apple right off the tree and get a whole lot more, a lot easier that way. But whenever you can farm grains, you can pack them in and you can get lots of grass right in one area and then you can strip it, cook it, uh, and you can enlist farmers and in some cases slaves to sort of pick and process it. And now that we can cook it, you can get this calorie-dense, easy-to-grow, storable food and it doesn't taste bad. Now, this is a big shift in mindset. See, before when you couldn't store food, you had to do what? You had to share it, right? You killed a big animal. You happen upon this big bumper crop of berries, or, or even after farming began, you know, if it's not grains, you had to share excess unless you could store it. But storing it gives you the power of choice. See, there's this age-old question that we still have to answer today. Do I share my excess? What, what do I do with it? Or do I hoard it? Like, I may not have rain next month. We may need to save. And so for the first time, I didn't really have to share my food, and I could keep it for myself and have power again next year. So we discovered cooking. We discovered farming, and particularly we began to farm grains. And now we're well on our way for massive numbers of people to start eating their 2,000-calorie daily diet. And then we made some other advancements in preserving food. So uh, one, we discovered salt, and it just so happens uh, that there are tons of salt buried in places where we can mine it and trade it, and so salt became a preserver that caught on. Another one that was a little more for wealthy people, ice, right? People knew you could hide carcasses in cold places and they would last longer. And then they soon discovered that like, you could carry large blocks of ice over long distances for long periods of time. You could preserve your food that way. Uh, another one that caught on was vinegar. Vinegar is this uh, acid that allows us to pickle and store things in a sterile environment to keep them from going bad. And then we discovered fermentation, which is like you know beer, wine, yogurt, bread, cheese, all of those things. Uh, were controlled with fermentation, and that allowed us to be able to preserve food a little bit. And so all of those things helped us figure out ways to make the food economy more stable, more accessible, yet more individualized and less about sharing. There's more towards the selection of the foods that you want and less about the foods that happen to naturally be growing there. And what kind of foods do we want? Remember, there has always been this drive from every living thing to get more energy more efficiently. That's the name of the game. 
Now, this is not unique to us. Like if I were to go put a deer feeder full of corn out in the middle of the woods, if you've had experience with this, you know what happens. You not only get deer, you get raccoons, wild pigs, you get birds, squirrels, everything in the world wants to come because they're attracted to that calorie-dense sweet corn kernel, right? So for the last several thousand years, humanity has been on this pursuit of figuring out more and better ways to ensure more calories, easier, faster, more of the time. Now we've got to talk about plants. Because in all of this evolution of food, there were some evolutionary winners. There were some plants that were going to make it. So we come to the 20th century where all of this push for consumption faster sort of hits an exponential curve and we move from merely producing to survive to a world where we scientifically engineer food to dominate to get as much as fast as possible Do you know as recently as 1900 one farmer could feed between four and eight people and now one farmer can feed 130 to 160 people now, side note, farming is also the profession, in America at least, with the highest suicide rates by far. See, we, we took that ancient drive for more energy and turned it into a quest. More energy, more cheaply, more efficiently. Okay, so let's talk about the plants that we decided to choose. Some plants do that better than others, and they are going to win out, and other plants are going to lose if more energy more efficiently is the name of the game. You know, some plants, they kind of have their limits. Too much fiber, too many minerals and vitamins, they kind of get in the way. And so a plant like that is not going to be the winner because they can't produce lots of energy cheaply. There's only certain crops they're going to really survive to move on to be mass produced in our engineering minded world. Everything else, no matter whether we might kind of like it, whether it might be very healthy, everything else is going to lose out when efficiency is the name of the game. Like, have you ever heard of wild einkorn? No, because it won out for a little while. Not so popular now. The winner's now. I did a little research and some math to figure out like which plants produce the most energy in the smallest area. And here's what I found, okay? So, you know, all plant energy, plants are converting the sunlight into energy that we can eat, okay? And so all of our energy starts with sunlight. We get on average about a half million to a million calories per day of sunlight, but you can only convert just a small percentage of that. So if you were to figure how many calories could you grow in an acre which plants convert the sun's energy best take a classic healthy leafy green like spinach or lettuce you can grow about a million and a half to two million calories in an acre with our best methods today which is pretty great but if you get a more dense food like broccoli you can get about two and a half million calories per acre and if you're a financial guy, that's a 25% gain. That's pretty great. It's quite an improvement. But you want to talk about wheat? Yeah, the, the wheat that we selectively bred from the grains that we discovered thousands of years ago. That wheat today, we can get about 4 million calories per acre. 
you're already doubling the energy consumption if we all eat wheat instead of spinach. We can get twice as much energy in the same amount of space. So your body may really want spinach and broccoli, but the evolving food economy wants your body to eat wheat because we've been on the trajectory of more energy faster. So uh, it gets better though. We discovered soybeans, 6 million calories per acre. How about the world staple rice? 11 million calories per acre. Sugar, 13 million calories per acre. The best, potatoes and corn. These dudes, they are giving us over 15 million calories in one acre. Now, if what I'm saying is correct, the human food narrative has been driven and has evolved by more energy more efficiently, if all of that's true, then it should be true that these foods that produce the most calories most efficiently should be the ones that we are eating and trading and selling the most. And guess what? All you have to do is go look in the grocery store and see. Now, there's this false narrative or idea out there that is popular that our, our grocery stores are full of variety and selection. I've heard it said somewhere that there's an average of about 47,000 products in a supermarket. I have no idea if that's right or not, but it's a lot. But if you pay attention, there are fewer than a dozen plants that make up the vast, vast majority of the calories in that store. I want to talk about six. Corn, potatoes, sugar, soybeans, rice, wheat. All six of them, remember the combination? Cheap, easy to grow, easy to process, easy to store, easy to transport, and a high calorie density. I would challenge you, if you haven't paid attention and started reading ingredient labels, to find foods without any corn, potatoes, sugar, soybeans, rice, or wheat. I want to talk about each one of them for a second. Wheat. I'm going to start with that one. It was the first one that we really developed. It is the most widely grown source of calories on earth. It's also, uh, it's also the oldest, and so we've been selectively breeding it for a long, long time, and it has really changed from the original grains that it was. So any sort of bread product whatsoever, crackers, cereal, granola bars, Pop-Tarts, cookies, cakes, pizza, pasta, we have figured out a million ways to prepare wheat just to get it in our bellies, but it's all the same thing coming from the same wheat field in Kansas. And then there's its brother, corn. Corn, it, it came from domesticated telcinte, like a weed almost. It is not at all the same as the original because this one is the most studied, most funded, most genetically modified plant on earth. Almost all, uh, almost 5% of all the land in the continental U.S. is planted with corn. 90 million acres, which is one-fourth of all of our farmland planted with one crop. So like we've got kernel corn, we've got corn starch, and then we've got some other things, maltodextrin, we've got corn cereals that we eat. But by far, our favorite 
is corn-fed meat animals. So whether it's chicken, pork, beef, or fish, corn-fed. So we're eating corn indirectly all the time. And who could forget corn syrup in all its glory? This stuff is in all kinds of sweets. And then there's soybeans, okay? So soybeans originated in China. They're a little newer to us, but they really have caught on. Uh, the same land size as corn together, uh, these two uh, make up about one half of our farmland. So we are growing soybeans like crazy. Now, nutritionally, they're touted for their protein, but they're really pretty empty. Um, and so like this, if you don't realize it, these dudes are just ever bit as prevalent they are what you fry your waffle fries in. They are the cheapest oil. They give us the cheapest oil on the market. Okay. And so like it's in almost every condiment and dressing. It is the king. Like if you don't know what kind of fast food oil your fast food is being fried in, just go ahead and assume it's soybean oil. All right. And then they take the soy a lot of times and we take the protein from it and it's a huge source of animal protein. So if your cow's not eating corn, it's eating soy protein because you can keep a cow alive on that for a while. There's a story about Henry Ford, uh, the, you know, the, the founder of Ford Motor Company. He comes to the lab one day with a bag of soybeans and his engineers are there and he just knew that soybeans were cheap, you know, so he's like, we've got to figure out something to do with it. So he dumped them on the floor in front of the scientists and said, you guys are supposed to be smart. You ought to be able to figure out something to do with these. And so in time, the scientist in his lab figured out how to make a strong enough plastic so that they could put it all over the car. And so they put it on like gear shift knobs and window frames and things like that. And they said in 1935 that Ford Motor Company was using a bushel of soybeans for every car they manufactured, <laughs> which is kind of cool. And it, and, the, and it brings me to this point that we will find what's cheap and we'll figure out something to do with it. And that's what we've done with wheat and corn and soybeans. It actually proves that we're not eating, even eating what we like the most. Like we have just figured out appealing ways to prepare the food that won the most energy contest. And so like companies, of course, promote them and figure out how to make things out of them because they're healthy for their bottom line, right? And sometimes politics influence it. Uh, I've heard it said before that if the first national primary elections were held in Vermont instead of Iowa, we'd all be putting maple syrup in our gas tanks. <laughs> so it may not be true, but it's funny. Um, and then we've got a couple of others. Potatoes. Okay, so we just love, I know it's like Seth don't dog on potatoes. We just love them. I love them straight up with a little salt. You give them to us chip fried, french fried, mashed, baked with all the drizzle. Just don't give me a french fry that's six hours old and cold. I don't know, but there's some sort of demon that comes in at like the hour mark and just destroys all the goodness in there. But potatoes, starchy calories fast. Rice, okay, so... I kind of always thought rice was healthy, right? Like, when did rice become this global staple? Uh, a couple thousand years ago, in various places, it, it took time. When we discovered that it could keep people alive. So rice really took off in many places in times of drought. So much of the proliferation of rice happened during times of famine, and it was literally life or death, and they discovered rice can actually keep you alive. And it can, but it's not the whole picture of what your body needs by any stretch. And so for millions of people today, unfortunately, rice is still the only step away from starvation. 
and, and then there's sugar. Now, of all the plants that I've just mentioned, this one, okay, first of all, it comes from sugarcane. Uh, sugarcane is not that sweet, uh, but we can refine it. We get all of the possibly healthy stuff out of it, and we refine it, and we get powdered sugar. Refined sugar, it is ad as addictive, I read, as cocaine. So like in 1800, a couple hundred years ago, we ate about four pounds of sugar per year per person. Today, we eat about 65 pounds of sugar per year per person. And that's just sugar. That does not count the corn syrup that's also a sugar. Altogether, we eat about 160 pounds of sugar. And what's crazy is that's an average. If you break it down into sectors, the bottom 50% of us consume as much as twice that much. While there's a lot of people that have cut back, we are so addicted to sugar overall. And ounce per ounce overall, sugar is one of the most nutrient-free, calorie-dense foods that you can get. Pure refined sugar has zero, uh, zero minerals, zero vitamins, no enzymes, no fiber. It's just empty energy, and it's so addictive and so good. And in the last 200 years, we have just really caught on and gotten hooked. Now, there are obviously other foods that I haven't mentioned uh, that have fared decently well, but I want to stop at these six because they're the main ones. And you take a trip through the grocery store and you can see that, I'm not kidding, these foods have really won out. Now, some of you know this very well because you've gone on elimination diets. Like, shout out to gluten-free people out there. Like, it really first sank into me whenever I went on the Whole30 that it's like, oh my goodness, you can't find anything that actually qualifies in my diet here because I'm just trying to cut out a few simple things, right? So the Whole30, it was like no grains, no dairy, no legumes, no sugar, nothing artificial, no fun. And it means that like 95% of the grocery store is off limits, okay? So most of the variety in our stores is in the produce section. And that even holds true across like fast food chains. Most of the variety is still, you got to go to the produce section of the grocery store. And I'm telling you all of this uh, because this happens with a mentality that is a survival mentality that we've got to consume more faster. And in time, we would quickly overshoot the 2,000 calorie mark when we continue on that trajectory. So flip over with me to what's happening circa 1950 in the food service industry. The McDonald's Brothers, you know those old golden arches? They have this barbecue shop in San Bernardino, California called McDonald's Barbecue that they realize, you know, even though everybody likes a little barbecue every once in a while, people aren't going to eat it every day. What they really want over and over is a burger. So they figured out what they could sell the most often to people, which was a burger, chips, a soda, an apple pie, and a shake, and they took everything else off their menu because their goal, maximum efficiency. Like we're seeing a theme here, right? They killed off all of the diversity that they had in their food service in order to maximize efficiency, in order to get more dollars, more power from people. So that quest for power doesn't limit itself to just 
calories. It's a quest for power. So these guys, they, they spent hours and hours designing the kitchen to be like an assembly line and practicing over and over again these same like fluid motions to get as many burgers served as possible in a short amount of time. So they sacrificed diversity to get efficient. And so we're not necessarily getting a variety like we thought we have. Now, I want you to think about the types of foods that we prepare with those ingredients. McDonald's is a great example. So we naturally are craving carbs. We naturally crave sugars. We naturally crave proteins. We naturally crave fats. We crave a variety and so the best meals are the ones that balance them out while still providing the most calories possible. So like we took our cheap calorie heavy ingredients and we started experimenting, you know, after 12,000 years of farming. And we not only don't have to eat nine hours a day to get our calorie needs met, we have finally figured out a way to eat a value meal in 10 minutes that has all 2,000 calories that our body needs for the day. Protein and fat in a meat patty. Carbs in a bun. More carbs and some starch and potatoes. A tiny bit of lettuce and tomatoes that kind of reminds us of what we used to eat. <laughs> fat in the french fry oil. Salt on everything. We crave salt. And then the balancing act to salt. The more salt you eat, the more sugar you want. And the more sugar you eat, the more salt. They kind of go hand in hand. In a Coke, mm, that's the American value meal. And what restaurant doesn't serve a value meal? The balancing act to cram as many carbs in, as many uh, grams of fat and protein in, and as many calories as possible. This is the story of the human feat of engineering, of how the human race was able to take a nine-hour task and reduce it to 10 minutes. This is the world that gave us the chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> the thing about the chocolate chip cookie is that it's almost perfect. So I had this chocolate chip cookie epiphany I want to share with you. Nobody doesn't like chocolate chip cookies unless you're a spoiled brat, okay? Oh, by the way, my daughter is selling them right now. If you want to buy some, there's no judgment. And so, um, if, say, like you listen to the podcast about how terrible a chocolate chip cookie is, and then you came to me and said, hey, can I buy some for your daughter? Complete forgiveness, okay? But I want to tell you about this epiphany I had one day. I was trying my hand at remaking some desserts with other options uh, besides what we've typically made them with. And I sort of, in the last year, kind of gone through a little bit of a personal um, awakening to food and have sort of like experimented around a lot and tried to figure out what goes with what, how do you create good foods and stuff. So I'm standing in my kitchen one day trying to figure out how to make some desserts. How can I create something from scratch that's really, really good? And I, I realized if you want a good dessert, it's got to be balanced or your body's going to reject it, right? So how can we get a really good dessert? And I noticed some patterns like the highest calorie food that we have is refined sugar, right? I mean, well, not, maybe not the highest calorie, but it's, it's up there. It's refined sugar. It's definitely straight sugar. And that's what your body wants. But you can't just eat spoonfuls of re refined sugar. You have to balance it out with something. And so like if you want as many calories as possible, you need to balance it because your body's going to want to like throw up because it's just too much. Even your body knows it's too much. But you can trick your body. So you can take some sugar and you can balance it out with salt 
and that helps you know your body crave more and then throw something a little bit bland in there right but if you're gonna throw something bland in there as like a filler then it needs to have a high calorie content right so what you do is you get some some powder some flour let's say you take out all of the natural fiber and all the stuff you know from a plant and you just focus on empty carbs that would go along with our sugar now it needs to be bland and you got to get as much of the nutrients out as possible so hey what about white flour right so we'll take some sugar and we'll take some white flour and then we're gonna put a little salt in there and we're gonna stir it together and now we have a pretty good taste of something sweet that gets as many calories in us as possible and we can just spoon that stuff right <laughs> and you're like well hold on a second it's powder Seth okay so they're dry so nobody wants to choke on powder so you need to get something to bind them together and make them a little more liquidy right but you don't want to put like water in there that's a perfectly good waste we need something that can add calories right so what liquid can you think of that would add the most amount of calories in order to bind them all together butter fat oil some sort of fat that's gonna get us tons of calories in liquid form let's melt some butter and let's stir them together and now we're starting to eat something that has the semblance of something that our body wants it's the most efficient way that you can cram lots of calories together and not puke when you're eating it right so throw in a couple of eggs because eggs provide just a little bit of protein and a little bit more flavor there and they still have a lot of calories in them and then um, you see where that's going right like pretty soon I realized oh my goodness like we arrived at a chocolate chip cookie because we had to <laughs> we didn't just accidentally step upon a chocolate chip cookie so to me like the chocolate chip cookie is sort of like the American symbol of calorie consumption right so I was thinking maybe we could put it on our dollar bill or something like that so so here's the point of all this so this is coming to a head because once we engineer so much calorie density in foods we for the first time in the history of the world have to stop and ask ourselves a question that we've never had to ask before because we have been on a runaway effect of weight gain so we passed up that 2000 calories a long time ago it's time that we had to ask ourselves a question so I want to pause right here though and just and just zoom out for a second and remind ourselves if food is the visible tip of an iceberg of our society's iceberg isn't it a remarkably accurate one empty energy how many of us could describe our 21st century existence as empty energy this buzz of busyness and consumption and cramming more on our bucket list and needing to accomplish more and get more likes and followers and totally empty life is maybe unhealthy maybe it's a wreck we are going faster than ever our minds are running 90 miles per hour schedules filled with a buzz this euphoria of busyness going 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 energy 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 and yet there's not a whole lot that's of value 
in it. It's just empty. Like some of you have this podcast on double speed, and and, and you should because I'm from East Texas. But why do we need to consume so much so fast? 42% of us are reporting chronic loneliness. Like what are we really getting from the busyness and scarfing down as much as possible and dropping the kids off to select sports and keeping up with the Joneses if at some point we don't have a thoughtful, mindful, soulful transformation of the way that our carnal drive is affecting us in the way that we're pursuing more, more, and more, we will drive ourselves to an early grave, which is what we're physically doing with our food in many cases. So like, think about our food and where it began. More calories, more efficiently is the way to survive. And now that we've mastered the art of cramming all of our daily calories in a sonic blast, it's time for a reformation. And uh, it's really funny. After all of this evolution, a lot of reformation is starting to happen. And do you notice what wealthy and educated people are doing in this reformation? Raw foods. <laughs> so we're going back to the very thing that we began on. Like, it's, it's really funny if you listen to all of the best marketing tactics on food. They include telling you how unevolved the food is and how unaffected it is by the narrative that I just gave to you. So, like, it's really funny. Where else in the world do you get to brag for not screwing people over? <laughs> like, companies put this badge of pride on their coffee that says, fair trade, as if that's not normal or organic. Like, hey, we didn't coat this stuff with glyphosate. So, like, we get a prize, and I'm like... Really? Like, in what world have we created where we get to brag on all of our food labels that we just did it the normal, healthy way? But we're so used to the food narrative that's become so much of a part of us, and we all know that we've got to get back to that way of living and eating. Now, the bad news for us is this. By the time we overshot our 2,000 calories per week, we have built an entire economy and lifestyles and family dynamics, Thanksgiving, on cheap, unhealthy food, which means that if we want to get back into balance with our diets, we're going to have to pay for it. We're going to have to lose. We're not only going to have to lose weight, but we're going to have to lose money. It's going to be costly not just a little costly. How costly? Just for a quick reference, uh, remember, if you were to replace all of the nation's corn calories with spinach calories, like we were to change over all of the corn land to spinach land, we would only be getting one-seventh as many calories, one-seventh as much power out of the spinach per acre so like, it's obviously way more complicated than that, but to oversimplify, it's going to cost us about seven times as much to eat leafy greens as it does corn per calorie. Now, we complain about our grocery bills, right? Like, I get it. Food is going up, and it's going up, and it's going up, and there's a lot of factors. But for too long, our grocery bills in America have been far too cheap 
because they've been based on diets that were not healthy and sustainable for humans to live on healthily in the long run. No healthy person should be able to eat that cheap. Now, um, I know you may be a little depressed at this point, but I'm actually excited because I believe in moving forwards, not backwards. And it is possible for people to eat a balanced and healthy diet that isn't the point of their existence. We can toss the addictions to simple carbs and we can move to a life that's beyond just another day of trying to hoard calories towards a world where justice and innovation and joy and celebration can win the days. We don't just have to buy foods that are easy to store, cheap and easy to produce, and pack lots of punch without lasting value. And we don't have to live lives that are cheap and easy to produce, where we store up instead of share. Or, or lives that look good in the moment, look flashy, look appetizing on social media while they provide little lasting value, right? We don't have to live that way. You know, if a man were to say, don't waste your time storing up things that you can see that will just be a buzz today and will be rotting tomorrow, but store up instead things in the unseen realm, beyond just the life of carnal consumption, that would be a very wise man. So we're in a new place that humans have never gone before. And because of our history, we shouldn't be mad. No, we, we should be thankful. We're not, we don't need to get on to all of the people in the past who brought us here, we should be thankful because we are now connected. What on earth do we have to be thankful for? Because we have something that so many people have gone on before us didn't have. We have power. None of the markers of the 21st century lifestyle could possibly exist without the foundation of a stable food supply. And now we have a choice, but it's our choice and our power that we must leverage in order to change this world from one that is merely consuming more into one that is healthy for everyone. We have power and a great deal of responsibility, and I believe that the future is going to be good. We have awareness, we have a spirit, and in the end, people who are following something greater than their own desire for more power more quickly and efficiently, I believe they're going to win the day. And if you, if you don't believe that, you may ask yourself, what's winning inside of your own heart inside of your own soul because I don't know about you but I want to believe I, and I believe I believe in you I believe that that we have this thing called faith that humans have this divine spark within us that drives us to something greater that in the end love and sacrifice and greater community and health and wellness will win the day over the empty buzz of more and more consumption it has everything to do with my faith my faith in Jesus. It, because in, in my narrative, in the Christian story, Jesus proved that love is stronger than hate, that, that putting yourself last and sacrificing 
for others can't be stomped out by evolution. And, and I believe that the spirit of goodness still lives in us and can multiply in us despite all of the ways that competing powers have evolved to take a stranglehold on our life and our economy. That in the end, we still have a choice to not succumb to more, faster, bigger, supersized, but we can actually live in balance and in health by giving to one another, by putting other people first, by putting relationships first, by resisting and dying to the flesh that says more, more, more. And we can do that if we live in community with a bigger purpose to life than just to mindlessly consume. So many of us feel lost in this circus of a world that we call the the American or the global economy. And, And many of us may feel lost or trapped in our food. And I want to talk about that uh, in the next episodes. And so what does it look like to change? I'm in this place where I don't feel like I'm really very close to where I want to be and I want to make change. What does that look like at a personal level? And remember, no outer change is going to take place without inner change. But I believe change is possible. Change the outer and change the inner both. It's called transformation. It's possible and I believe in it. All right, so next week, I'm going to be sitting down with an amazing doctor. Some of you know Dr. Tony Rector, and uh, we're just going to talk basics of food. I just want to ask, like, straight from the horse's mouth, like, what should we actually be eating? Because this guy knows his stuff when it comes to food. He is incredible. Uh, So, like, what should our diets look like? Uh, Check that that one out next week. A lot of love to you all, and I hope this episode finds you having a great week. A lot of peace, a lot of love, a lot of grace.